Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Well, is it possible that you could get misinformation off of the internet? Could someone actually be providing inaccurate descriptions of guns, ballistics, ammo, cartridges? Oh, say it's not so. <laughs> Sorry, it's so. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Hey, if you are watching this instead of just listening to it, you will notice over my right shoulder is a new photograph that we've put up. This was from way back in the 1880s when I was heavily into wildlife photography, and I used to go into Colorado near Estes Park. Rocky Mountain National Park is there, and they used to have some spectacular mule deer. And I would roam around in the rutting season right around Thanksgiving and get some pretty spectacular bucks. This is not a spectacularly huge buck, but the setting I think is particularly spectacular. Look at that snow coming down. And then when this buck saw me and gave that quizzical look and a bend to his his neck, and I don't know, it just really captured something about mule deer for me. So I printed it up in remembrance of the old days, this sort of a two-dimensional trophy from one of my wildlife photography hunts. Uh, <laughs> now, what I was talking about with this um, internet inaccurate information sprang from a conversation I had with one of my patrons, Chuck. He had written me, I'll just read you what he wrote me. Ron, I was watching one of your older videos about where the 30-06 cartridge came from. It's common knowledge it came from the old 7mm and 8mm Mausers. That got me curious, which one did come first, the 7 or the 8? Well, I've copied below what the internet says. We know that the internet is never wrong. Lots of laughs. So here's what the internet said. <laughs> the 7.92 by 57 Mauser, designated as the 8 millimeter Mauser, or the 8 by 57 millimeter by SAMI and 8 by 57 IS by the CIP, that's the European equivalent of SAMI, it is a rimless bottlenecked rifle cartridge. 
7.92 by 57 Mauser, that is the actual designation for it. We just sort of simplify it by saying 8 millimeter because 7.92 is pretty close to 8. The 7.92 by 57 Mauser cartridge was adopted by the German Empire in 1903-1905 and was the German service cartridge in both world wars. The 7x57 Mauser, designated as the 7mm Mauser or the 7x57mm by the SAMI and 7x57 by the CIP, was a first-generation smokeless powder rimless bottleneck rifle cartridge. It was developed by Paul Mauser of the Mauser Company in 1892 and adopted as a military cartridge by Spain in 1893. Whew. Now, Chuck goes on to say, according to this, the 7mm Mauser predates the 8mm Mauser by about 10 years. I found it interesting. Love the videos. Keep them coming. And by the way, I'd love to see a detailed video of your custom Model 70 30-06. All right, skip the 30-06 for now. Get back to the 7mm, 8mm. They were wrong on the dates on that uh, 757 or the 857. 1903 and 1905 was when the German military changed their 8mm official military cartridge to shoot a wider diameter bullet. So here's how it happened. In 1888, their commission for developing arms and ammunition came up with the Mauser. Well, it wasn't really a Mauser because Mauser did not design this. Peter Paul Mauser did not design the 8mm Mauser cartridge. The German military commission did. 1888. 8mm Mauser, or as they say, the 7.92 by 57. That's when it came out, but it was shooting a 0.318 inch diameter bullet. In 1905, they changed it to shooting the wider 0.323 inch diameter bullet. And they called it the Mauser because they were chambering it in Mauser's bolt action rifles, the Gewehr 98. So, it's easy to get some of this stuff mixed up. Can't blame folks for getting a little confused on that. And then this IS designation they mentioned, the 8x57IS, that is accurate but confusing because the original IS was confused and taken to mean JS. That really starts to make things fuzzy. So it has to do with the script used by the Germans back then. Uh, it was seen and interpreted by... I guess some U.S. soldiers, that the the I looked like a J. So we started calling it the J.S. And I forgot what the J stands for. Probably Jaeger, even though J doesn't sound like Jaeger. But a Jaeger is hunter in German. J is sounded like the Y. But why they would call a military bullet a hunter, I don't know. But at any rate, it was an I is what they meant. And that was standing for infantry cartridge, I guess. The 8x57 infantry cartridge. It got all mixed up, so the, the I turned into a J. And then when they went from the 318-inch diameter bullet to the 323, they had to designate that, so they used the letter S. Um, I don't know what that stood for, but in German, it made sense. Well, by the time we translate all that stuff into English, whew, no wonder people get it confused. But the basic answer is the actual 8x57 military cartridge from Germany started in 1888. And then the 757 was a Peter Paul Mauser creation, and he did make it, uh, well, he first sold it to the Spains, Spaniards. The Spanish Army in the 1873 model Mauser bolt-action rifle, which was predecessor to the Model 98, 
that one was used by the Spanish in, and they had it chambered in the 757, and they used it against us in the Spanish-American War in 1898. San Juan Hill, Kettle Hill in Cuba, Philippines, Teddy Roosevelt, Rough Riders, all of that history. Whew, this is pretty complicated stuff. But yes, the 757 came after the 8-millimeter Mauser. Now, the head diameter, body diameter, pretty much the same on it. Obviously, he necked it down to seven. He may have changed the body diameter by a one one thousandth of an inch or something, but it's really essentially the same thing. And I'm guessing that Mauser went with the seven and uh, chilled it to the Spaniards because the military probably disallowed sharing that military cartridge in that day. The 8 by 57 he couldn't sell that one chambered up in his rifles and sell it to the competing government in Spain in case they went to war against Spain or something. You know, that stuff is. So I suspect that's why he changed it to 7 millimeters. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if we have any real historians out there who know this stuff. But, yeah, that's how it would come down on that one. So, and then in final year, Chuck um, asked me about this custom model 7030 30-06. Um, and I am going to do a video on that one of these days. I've featured it a couple of times in some videos explaining things like controlled round feed or showing the impact energy of a 30-06 versus a 45-70. And a lot of people really catch it because it's such a, well, it stands out. It's not your everyday rifle. It has a pretty fancy Bastone walnut stock on it with a lot of figure in it. And that catches your eye. Plus, the barreled action is stainless steel, so you've got silver instead of black. That's why it jumps out. And it is a custom um, built by Rifles, Inc. And shoots like a house of fire and all the other stuff. So, yeah, I'll cover that someday in a video. We'll just feature the good Model 70 30 has been around for quite a while. It's taken a lot of game, but it's a sweetheart. All right, let us see what sort of questions we've gotten from the, the general audience. These are pulled together by my team, mainly uh, Silas and Betsy. We have a pretty extensive team around here. <laughs> and they just go through questions that come in. You can go to ronspomeroutdoors.com, my website, and there's a comment section right up on top. It says comments, and you click on that, and there's a form you fill out. And you can say, hey, Ron. What do you think about this, that, and the other thing? Or you're full of it. <laughs> Whatever you want to tell us. But I think they pull some of these off of the uh, the internet comments that come on my broadcasts, too, because some of them look kind of familiar, like, I think I've seen this before. So let's just see what we've got this time. This is from Ohio, a gentleman named Nathan. I really enjoy your podcast. Thank you, sir. So the rotation of the Earth is constant. Uh-oh. I think we're going to Coriolis effect, boys. Hang in there. <laughs> so the rotation of the Earth is constant, and since arrow has much slower speed than a bullet, is there a chance that the Coriolis effect would come into play when shooting long distances with a bow and arrow? Now, that's a new one. Like at, at 100 yards, would you notice it? Or would it still need to be over 1,000 yards like a bullet? Boy, from what I know about this Coriolis effect, Nathan, I would say... Don't worry about it with an arrow. It's got to be the distance thing. It takes a long time to make the change in the rotational speed of the Earth from the equator toward the North Pole. So you got to get quite a ways away from the equator, and then you've got to send that bullet a long, long way. And jet pilots can tell you a lot about Coriolis because they have to factor it in, getting from point A to point B, because if they go in a straight line, it turns out point B isn't there anymore. It's moved. Okay, that's as deep as we're going into Coriolis this time. 
Here's someone from Indiana named Shane. Hey, Ron, I really enjoy your podcast. I'm a truck driver and I listen while I'm trucking along. In response to the bone marrow topic, we have tried white-tailed deer bone broth with no success whatsoever. We gave it up. That's interesting. Shane, I heard from a lot of folks who said they love it and they just enjoy the flavor and the taste and have good success with it. So it might be something to do with how it's done. I remember some of them said that they baked it first and then they boiled it to get the marrow out. Some said it didn't have a off taste at all and they really loved it. Um, you're going to have to probably dig a little deeper. I might have to do that this hunting season. We'll try some recipes and see what we come up with. Um, now, Shane goes on to some ballistic stuff, it looks like. I have a question about wildcatting. Has anyone tried shortening a 4570 cartridge to 1.8 inches for Midwestern deer hunting? He says 1.8 because some states have this requirement. Your cartridge can't be any longer than 1.8 inches. I don't know if that's the case length or the case with the bullet, the overall length of the cartridge, but that's the designated number. Okay, so back to his question. Or is it just not enough gain over a 44 rem mag? I shoot most of my whitetails with a Henry 44 Magnum. That'd be a lever action rifle. And I have had great success with clean kills out to about 125 yards. What is your pick for the longest range hand load for a 44 rem mag? Thanks, Shane. Ha. Well, Shane, I'm not going to give you any recipes for uh, loading up your 44 or anything else. That's just, it's not safe to do it. We've got hand loading manuals with all this tested data in it. And if I spout it over the air, I might, mess up a number along the line or something and somebody might misinterpret it and I don't want to be responsible for screwing things up for anyone. So I'm not going to give any recipes. I just heartily suggest you look in the hand loading manuals and do note that there are differences between the hand loads and their muzzle velocities from a six inch handgun barrel to your rifle barrel. You got probably an 80, 18 inch barrel on there. You're going to get more velocity that way. And then there's also potential to have a little bit higher pressure in some firearms than others, depending on the strength of the action in the barrel. With a handgun, a revolver, you can't have your pressures all that high. But in a rifle, you might be able to go a little higher, and some hand-loading manuals will detail those things for you as well. So it can be quite variable based on uh, what you're shooting it in. As far as maximum range, you know, out to 125 yards, I think you're about there. Certainly the bullet will do a job. It's a big enough bullet that even if you don't have high impact velocity and a lot of mushrooming, you should have enough momentum in that 240-ish grain bullet to reach the vitals at, I would guess, 200 yards. But you're really starting to fight your drops and your wind deflections. And generally, someone hunting with a 44 mag, you are figuring to be close range anyhow. I wouldn't push the envelope on these things. If you need to reach farther, there are better options out there. But inside of 150 yards, I think your lever action 44 Magnum is a pretty good way to go. All right. Hey, and keep it between the lines and safe trucking. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Our partner. All right, this is Daryl from Michigan. Why don't you do a video on eye dominance? I'm right-handed, but left eye dominant, so I shoot left-handed with long guns and bows. Pistols and revolvers automatically line up with my left eye with either hand, so keeping both eyes open has its advantages. Thanks. Boy, that is a good point, Daryl. Keeping both eyes open, I think, is really important. Most of us will do the old squint and shoot thing. Isn't necessary, but a lot of people just cannot keep both eyes open and see the sights. And that might have to do with their eye dominance. So good point. How do you know whether your left eye or your right eye is dominant? And what do we mean by dominant? Dominant means that it automatically assumes the aiming. If you put your finger out and you point it at something, put it right over, say, a light switch in the, in the other side of the room there. And with both your eyes open, just very casually go punk and point it so that, oh, it's right underneath the light switch. Then close your left eye and you should see it still under the light switch if you're right eye dominant. But if you're left eye dominant when you do that, it's going to jump. You're going to notice that whatever you point at, close one eye and it jumps off to the right or the left. So do it again, point under your light switch, close your right eye, and if your finger suddenly jumps right of where your light switch is, you're not left eye dominant, you're right eye dominant. If it stays there when you've got your left eye up, then your left eye is dominant, meaning it is the one that has the power to put your aiming point, your sight, under the target or on the target. That's how you, you can do it with a circle as well. You can have someone look at you and you say, you know, make this little circle and then point it right at my nose. They will be able to look through the circle at your eye. Right now, it's my right eye. If I'm my left eye dominant, I'd have to move over here. But to me now, I'm seeing it. My thumb is aiming at the camera, not the circle in my fingers. So that's how you determine dominance. This, I think you should do before you start shooting anything. You can get by with a rifle using the sights, closing your eye uh, and looking through the scope. The eye dominance isn't a big deal, but when you're shooting a shotgun, it's your eye that is doing the sighting, not the gun. The gun matches up physically with the fit of your body, and your eye looks down where the barrel is, or the barrel is going to be lined up where your eye is pointing. So if you're looking with your left eye, you want to have the barrel under your left eye, so it's going to be a left shoot. Right? Obviously, you're staying like that. Some people have variable dominance. They're so similar that sometimes your left eye takes over, sometimes your right. I have noticed this myself a few times. You know, you sometimes get a little bit of something in your eye and it's a little bit fuzzy. If this happens when you're shooting very quickly, you don't take time to like, oh, get that out of my eye. You just shoot. Your left eye might take over if your right eye is temporarily impaired a bit. At least that's what I have interpreted it when it happens to me. But there are some people who are so close in their eyes' um, ability to take dominance that it'll bounce back and forth. And that gets pretty confusing for them. So, yeah, that's good advice. I would say figure out 
which of your eyes is dominant and then learn to shoot from that side, especially a new shooter. With older folks, it's like, this is too hard. I don't want to do it. Well, you can do it. It just takes some effort and time. But new shooters definitely figure out which is their dominant eye and train them to shoot from that side. Because the shooting, that's all new anyway. It's all going to feel strange. You're going to be bending your head over and ducking and trying to get things figured out. They may as well start with a side that favors their eye because they'll shoot just a lot better, whether it's a rifle with a sight, shotgun without a sight, or a handgun. All right, that was a good one. Thank you, Daryl, for bringing that up. Gerald from Canada. No, Gerard from Canada. Oh, I've heard from him before. I remember that. Gerard from Canada. Let's see what he has to say. Hi, Ron. It's the South African from Canada again. Aha! I knew I'd heard from this gentleman. I almost caught up with all of your 2022 podcasts as I listened to an episode every morning while taking the dog out for a walk. So here's the question. What's the advantage or disadvantage of a belted magnum case or cartridge? It is my understanding that the 375 H&H is the father of most of the belted magnum cartridges we see today, but we also see non-belted magnums with the same pressures and performance than the older belted magnums. Was a belted case designed for pressure or headspace back in the days or what? Thanks, Gerard. Now, this question is getting me to think, I think I've answered this before too, but maybe it was someone else. It's a fairly common question. So even if we've answered this one before, um, it's worth doing again because not everyone catches every episode. But some good points here. This is a confusion for a lot of folks. When I was a kid, we all went ooh and ah when we saw a belted magnum because the standard line was these are such powerful high-pressure cartridges that you need that belt around the base to hold in the pressures. Turns out that was just marketing nonsense. The belt is there to establish head spacing. It keeps the cartridge from going too far into the chamber by matching up to a little rim in the breech of the rifle at the chambering. Stops that shell right there. So, gosh, if you look at it and think, man, why is that extra belt on there? It must have something to do with strength. Everybody knows that belts hold things in, right? So why not go with it if you're selling this stuff? My magnum is so powerful, I needed an extra belt. And that became standard information. It was wrong. So that's why the belts are there. Now, why do you see some non-melted belted magnums that not only match that the pressures and the velocities and such, but even exceed them? You know, it's just because they knew they didn't need the belt, so they went without one because it makes it easier to to build an accurate chamber in a rifle. It's just a little bit simpler, and it's especially useful for hand loading when you have to resize your cases. The belt sort of gets in the way of resizing the brass right down to the very edge of the belt, and you'll end up with potential head separation right there at the head after you hand load several times and resize several times. It's uh, You'd have to be a hand loader fully understand, but trust me, that's what's going on with that. That's why a lot of experienced shooters who hand load don't like to work with belted magnums. There are ways around that with special dies that will handle that problem, but that's kind of why. And um, it's also easier to get a, a bottlenecked cartridge to align perfectly in your chamber to line up with the center of your barrel, keep everything concentric to the axis. It's easier when you're working off of the shoulder of the cartridge. You want the shoulder to be slammed right up against its datum point in the chamber of the rifle, nice and tight if you can get it. 
And that keeps things lined up a little bit better. And that's one of the little tweaks that hand loaders work with. So that's basically what's going on with those belts. Pressure is established by the industry as a standard. Uh, you know, most modern steels, your barrel diameter and the thickness of it and all, obviously those change based on the chambering. If you cut a, a chamber for, let's say, a 223, which is real narrow, tiny little cartridge, you use the same barrel and you open it up to take a 243, you've reduced the quantity of metal surrounding the chamber. Now what's going to happen with your pressure? Can you keep a high pressure? Or are you exceeding the ability of the steel to stay together under that pressure in the chamber? So they have to figure all of that stuff up, knowing the metallurgy and the uh, pressures and set a standard for each cartridge. And then SAMI does that. We're always talking about SAMI, S-A-A-M-I, Sporting Arms and Ammunition Manufacturers Institute. They formed this thing so that they could establish standards for everyone. So you can safely build a rifle to shoot a particular cartridge, and then you can safely load the cartridges to be fired in all the rifles. Everything matches up with a small degree of tolerance one side or another. And then they say, all right, we're going to say this particular cartridge is going to have a maximum chamber pressure of, it could be 50,000 PSI, 60,000 PSI, 65,000 PSI. And for a long time, 65,000 PSI was the max. Now get this. It sounds like, wow, that's a modern high intensity Magnum cartridge. It's the 270 Winchester from 1925. The .30-06 in 1906 was already up to 60,000 PSI. That was big stuff back in those days. You get back to the 4570 and you're looking at about 43,000 PSI, or that, that one was measured in cups. It's a different system of measuring the pressure called copper units of pressure. But it amounts to the same thing. You got The numbers don't match up evenly, but it's still, you've got your maximum pressure as measured by SAMI. So the pressures aren't any higher in the magnums. You know, the Weatherby magnums don't go above 65,000 PSI. Uh, there were some wildcatters out there that built some cartridges that became proprietary. Um, Lazzaroni, I believe, in his rifles, he would build his cartridges and rifles to withstand, I think, 70,000 PSI, if I'm right. Don't take my word for that one. Do some research. But the Lazzaroni proprietary cartridges and rifles were designed to take additional pressure for more velocity. And now the new standard for at least one gun is 80,000 PSI Sig Sauer in the 277 Fury rifle. And they had to put a steel head on the brass case in order to contain those pressures as well. So that's a one-off deal. Nobody else is doing that. I don't know if they ever will. That might just be exclusive to Sig Sauer and that particular cartridge, or they might develop a whole line based on that. The idea is to be able to get traditional velocities in any given caliber in a shorter barrel by having higher pressures. So that's what's going on with pressures. Um, I think that answered your questions, Gerard. I hope so. If not, write back again and again, and we'll try to get it right. All right. This is Mark from Wisconsin. Hi, my buddy's 14-year-old son asked me if, if I were 14 years old, what deer rifle would I buy? I'm curious what you would recommend. Boy, I'd like to be 14 again, I think. Now, let's skip the teenage years. We'll go to 24. <laughs> Also, what are your thoughts on a stainless barrel? Are there any disadvantages? I have a couple of non-blue barrels, and I said no more blue barrels for me. 
Thanks for your time and willingness to share your knowledge. Well, you're quite welcome, Mark. Um, let's go with your stainless barrel first. I can understand why once you've used a stainless barrel, you say no more blue barrels for me. <laughs> um, and that's just because of the ease of upkeep and maintenance, right? It's just so nice to know when you're out in the rain, you don't have to start worrying about your barrel rusting all that quickly. Now, stainless steels can rust. They do rust, but much more slowly. They, I think they have a higher carbon content or is it chromium content? Chromium content, I think, is what does it. It reduces their rustability. So that makes it a lot more convenient. And especially internally, you know, if you get moisture on the outside, you wipe it off, put a little oil on it, fine. But down the bore, you're out walking with it slung in a misty rain and you get water down your bore, you really don't always remember that. It might happen for a few minutes in the morning and then you kind of forget about it by the end of the day. And you don't get in there and dry that out, and get the rust out. So something to be said about the longevity in that regard. Now, someone recently asked about whether stainless was better for accuracy or longer life or something. And I did a bunch of research on that. And it just pretty much one side says, yay, the other side says, no, it came out as a wash. Both of them can be equally accurate. Um, some said that the right kind of stainless steel would have a little bit longer life, upwards of something like 20%. Um, but golly, how many of us shoot through a barrel anyway? Unless you're a target shooter, if you're just a hunter, it isn't likely that you're going to shoot out a barrel in a lifetime. Maybe some of the super high pressure, high volume, uh, narrow board things like a 26 uh, Nosler or a 220 Swift classic case. Any of those that have a lot of powder and a tiny bore, you'll burn them out a little bit sooner. So I generally wouldn't worry about it. I always say barrels are like tires. You got to change them when they wear out. <laughs> Now, the 14-year-old's uh, question about which deer rifle I would buy. Man, that is such a personal thing that I hate to advise other than don't go too elaborate and heavy. These days, I think that too many young people are falling for all the fancy, elaborate uh, gizmos and gadgets. The more stuff you hang on that rifle, the more edges and curls and, and knobs and lockers it's got, the more they seem to like it, which for a hunting rifle is the opposite way you want to go. You want to keep things smooth and simple and clean. You're out in the woods. You're going through the grass. You don't need to be snagging lots of debris in your rifle. You don't want to have to be thinking about making tweaks and adjustments. We have hunted game for hundreds of years with firearms quite successfully without having to adjust the comb and the length of the pull and hanging lights on it and all sorts of stuff. Don't confuse tactical firearms with practical firearms. Hunting is not the same as some of these military applications and police applications and target hunting and shooting and whatever games you're playing. I mean, it can be a lot of fun to have, let's say, a laser on your firearm uh, for aiming or a light for illuminating feral pigs at night and different things. But in your general hunting rifle for deer and elk and all the rest of it, keep things simple. Um, beware of too much gun, especially as a young shooter or a lightly framed hunter who might be affected by recoil. You don't want to get off on the wrong foot or should we say the wrong shoulder <laughs> and shoot a hard kicking rifle that forces you into a recoil response that is going to limit your accuracy. You, I would rather shoot a very light rifle and cartridge and not develop recoil than the other way around. So start with something like a 243. 
If you want to be a little more versatile for down the road, try a 6.5 Creedmoor, much as I hate to say it, or a 260 Remington or anything else, 6x55 Swede. Um, a lot of good options there, but 24 calibers, 25 calibers, 6.5 caliber, up in that range, uh, you're going to do just fine and keeps the recoil low. Now, the other thing I would say about your rifle is keep it fairly light, you know, balancing the recoil. You don't want to feel like you're dragging a big, heavy club through the woods. Um, so I would say seven pound range. And again, if you shoot a lighter cartridge, a lighter bullet with less recoil, you can get away with a lighter rifle. And I think you will find that it's just more fun to be out there roaming and looking for game with a light rifle. And even if you're working a lot out of a sitting position in a stand or something, you're just going to find that it's easier to work that rifle, to lift it up quickly and smoothly and not be just big, heavy thing. You get big, a little older and stronger and stuff. Yeah, you can move up the scale on it. But even when I was in my prime, I just really enjoyed lightweight rifles. I found that I could get on my game much more quickly with those. Do not then fall for the long range thing as well. You know, that's fine for some long range target shooting and training and all sorts of work and games and stuff. But in general, you will find that most of the game you hunt is going to give you a good shooting opportunity inside of 300 yards. Most of them will probably be inside of 200 yards. So don't think I need to set up to shoot something at 800 yards. You just don't have to do that and you shouldn't strive to do that because it just makes it that much more difficult to guarantee you're going to make a good shot. And the whole idea behind hunting is to know you're going to make a perfect shot, not hope or guess and try to get lucky. Then uh, let's see what else can I tell you? you know, lightweight, handy, smooth. Action comes down to personal preference. Do you like a slide action? Not many of those out there, but they sure are fun. Uh, or a lever action, they are equally fun. Bold action is kind of the standard. You're, you're going to find it easier to get a really accurate rifle in a bold action. There are so many different models to choose from, and some of them are remarkably inexpensive these days. So I would... Uh, I just find that a bold action is more than enough for almost any hunting I do. And you can also consider a single shot. And here's why. With a single shot, you are going to learn to make that shot count. You're not going to take risky shots. You're not going to do a hope and a prayer. You're going to get as close as you need to be for a clean shot. You're going to wait for the animal to be in a perfect position for the clean shot. You're going to make that shot. You're going to get your game. You're going to pat yourself on the back. And everybody else is going to do the same thing because you've done the job right. One shot is all it takes. I know most guys are not going to listen to that, but it's true. All right. Those are good questions, Mark. And I hope you, uh, your buddy's 14-year-old son gets just the right rifle and has great success with it. Here's Tommy from Indiana. Hello, Ron. Thanks for sharing your wealth of knowledge over the years. I find your articles and videos very informative, and I have put together information to use many times. My question is this, Midwest deer hunting with a 243 Winchester. I chose this round to introduce my grandchildren to deer hunting, but I'm having a heck of a time deciding on ammunition. I'm basically looking for something that'll do business at 20 yards as well as 200 yards. Maybe a tall order, but I thought I'd ask for your opinion. Thanks again. Yeah, Tommy, I think you're maybe sweating this a little more than you need to. The standard in a 243 for a long, long time has been the 100 grain bullet, uh, cup and core. 
right behind the shoulder, standard stuff. That will suffice for an on-shoulder hit as well. Uh, but if you're a little bit worried about penetration, because it is possible for some of these more frangible bullets to break up, um, not get as much penetration as you might want. Generally not with 100 grain. You get down to 80 or lower, and then you might have a little issue with that. So you might want to just stick with the 90 to 100 grain bullets in your basic cup and core. That would be a PowerPoint or a core lock or the Federal soft point, those types. Um, Hornady would be the uh, SST or the, uh, the interlock is a little beefier than that. Not a, not, that's a good choice, really. So it's not real radical on which one you go with. But if you go with a copper bullet, you're going to be down around 75, 80 grains maybe 85 in order to be stabilized in that twist rate of your rifle. I would guess you've got a one in 10 or maybe a one in nine twist. And those copper bullets, you know, they get quite long because the copper is not as dense as lead. So you, I, I've just found that copper works beautifully in my six millimeter, especially. Um, haven't used it all that much in my 243s yet. But I've also found that a frangible varmint bullet can be devastating. But as so many people would tell you it's risky because of that frangibility. But if you can get that bullet just behind the shoulder and all you're hitting is hide and, and maybe a rib bone, that bullet will get into the lungs and do all of its damage and a lot of damage right there in a little pocket. And it can be a real quick killer. But it, it is risky unless you are really a good shot. And new shooters, younger shooters get excited. Probably not the best option. So I would stick with that. A full-on 90 to 100 grain bullet, either the cup and core or a partition or an interlock or an interbond or some bonded bullet for deeper penetration. Those often will, even with a 243, shoot through side to side. And you'll get a blood trail on the far side, but that deer will probably run until the blood pressure drops. And I expect anywhere from a 20-yard run to as much as 100. But I get that with a lot of different calibers and cartridges. It's not just the 243. I've even had it with a 300 win mag. So, no, I think you'll do fine with, with any bullet. It's not a tall order, 20 yards out to 200 yards. It'll handle it. I once shot a whitetail running at me from about 10 yards away. I mean, it was about to run me down like a charging rhino. <laughs> My my buddy had spooked it out of a thicket, and I was on stand waiting for it. And here it came running right at me. Then I don't think he ever saw me. And I raised my six millimeter and shot it right in the chest, and it didn't flinch. It just turned and ran up and over the hill where my brother was. And I yelled, there he comes. And I took a snapshot as, at it as it was going over the hill. That was a mistake because the bullet just hit the ham and ruined a bunch of meat and never got into any vitals. But then I heard my brother shoot on the other side of the hill. I ran up there, and there the deer was lying dead, and he had his knife out and he was working on it. So I let him work on it. When he got done, I said, let's check for holes. The only hole in it was the one I put in the front when it was running at me. <laughs> got my brother to do the dirty work for me. But the point is, that bullet, even though it was a 100 grainer, uh, it didn't show any reaction on the deer and it took it a while to run up and over the hill to expire, as they often do. You, you got the heart and lung area and it's hemorrhaging that does it. So <laughs> expect something like that. All right, let's go to Texas. Burnin from Texas says, Mr. Spomer et al. at all means and others. So it must mean Silas and Betsy as well. 
Yesterday, I sent a question asking about radical experiments in barrel twist and or cartridges. Well, I remember that. I covered that not long ago in a podcast. Like if any wildcatter had ever made a one-in-one twist barrel. Yeah, that's the one. Or experimented with really low ratios. Fascinatingly, a video about just that, a crazy new cartridge, came up on my YouTube, and I wanted to send you a follow-up note, even though I only watched one video about it. It's this new, the newly developed 8.6 Blackout. That's what I touched on in that last podcast. I wasn't sure if it was called Blackout or not. I thought it was, but he's confirming it. And the barrel has an insane one to three twist. That's the one. Crazy, amazing, and fascinating. So I hope that someone will lend you one of those with which to do some videos or a blog. Thanks again for all the things I've been learning since I started watching your channel. Sincerely, Vernon. Yeah, great, Vernon. Um, Yeah, I do need to probably get that. Several people have suggested, and it does sound like an unusual and interesting cartridge to work with. One in three twist, I had never heard about. When I first heard about this blackout and somebody said it was a one in three twist, I said, got to be a typo. They must mean one in eight. But nope, it's one in three. And the reason they developed that twist rate is they're using obviously really long bullets. This is one of those subsonic deals. And in addition to that, they are enhancing the twist rate because they've got a short barrel and you can't get your velocities up. Velocity is a component in stabilizing your bullet at a certain twist rate. So a big, heavy, long bullet moving slowly, you need to really spin that baby. And they discovered some added benefits in terminal performance from that hyper rotation. And they are claiming something like 500,000 RPM out of a, gosh, was it a 16-inch barrel or even shorter? Might have been down around even a 10-inch and 8-inch barrel. Crazy. But the uh, rotation is proving to throw a lot of radial damage from the inline direction of the bullet's progress through the target. You're getting a lot of radiated damage out into the organs. And whether that's only the, the pressure moving away or particles of the bullet breaking up and moving away, not sure. But I've seen this spin effect on Barnes X bullets over the years. I'll recover a bullet and those expanded pedals will be torqued. And that got to be from the twist, obviously. The bullet's spinning and hits the flesh and it gets friction and it bends that copper. Pretty impressive stuff. And that's got to be contributing to the impact. So terminal performance enhanced by the rifling twist rate. Cool. Good to hear from you again there, Vernon. I don't know if it's Vernon or Vernon. Vernon. Sorry about that. Um... Yo, that looks like it. End of the line here, guys. So uh, once again, we thank you all for listening and uh, keep firing those questions to me and letting me know if I got anything wrong or if you have anything useful to add like so many folks do. That's always fun to learn new things like the 8.6 blackout until somebody responded to one of my videos. I didn't even know there was one. Um, Okay, until next time, this is Ron Spomer thanking you for joining us here on the podcast, and we will be looking forward to seeing you again next week on Honest and Shoot Straight.